Okay, well, the, uh, the passage for this evening is in your bulletin. It's not a parable, unfortunately. It's, uh, it's a psalm, because we are going through the psalms at Salem Presbyterian Church, where I am a pastor. And um, we're looking at Psalm 2, which is a psalm that is about the uh, coronation of King David, which happened around 1000 B.C. And uh, historians would agree of any kind, you know, secular or not, that this really did, this really did happen. And this was a song that was written on the occasion of his coronation. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. So it might help to imagine the scene. Imagine this room is like the throne room of, of David. It would be a lot taller than this, but it might be a similar size. Um, and the throne is up here. David uh, is coming in from back there. Here before the throne is the high priest, Abiathar. And um, as David comes up to the throne, this massive chorus of people uh, are chanting out, uh, Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? kind of mocking the Gentiles around them who would want to destroy Israel. And as David approaches, he kneels before the high priest in subjection to God, who the high priest represents. And the chorus would sing, He who sits in the heaven laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And then Abiathar, the high priest, would speak on behalf of God and would say, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's responding to the nations. Uh, The nations are kind of mocking God, and God's response is, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then Abiathar takes oil, and he would probably put it in his palm like this, and he would pour it on David's head. It's called anointing. He would anoint him with oil, and then would say, on behalf of God, you are my son, because the king was considered the son of God. And as he puts the crown on David's head, he would say, Today I have begotten you. And now you are the Messiah. You are the the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And as David would rise up off his knees and sit on his throne, the congregation would erupt in praise, would stand and, uh, and clap and wave their arms and say, Long live King David. And we know this because this is written in the book of 1 Kings. And at that moment, when King David was made the Messiah, um, God had established this throne on earth uh, that would be completely fulfilled in the great Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. 
And from that point on, you could say the eagle has landed. Because at that point, God had um, begun this resistance movement on earth that would, uh, would begin there and would continue till right now and moving forward of a, of a resistance to um, this evil empire that we live in today, this world that has gone berserk. The setting of the psalm, verses 1 and 2, you hear the, uh, the empire there, the voices of all the rulers and the kings and the peoples and the empires. And I really do believe that um, the, the galactic empire is the best analogy. I think, I think George Lucas probably, somewhere in the back of his mind, had in mind the story of Scripture. I think all great stories represent the story of Scripture. And so, you know, imagine Emperor Palpatine and this hostile takeover of a galaxy that was once great, that was once good, and now has been taken over by these voices that uh, are raging against God. And uh, another analogy might be Europe under Nazi occupation. When uh, Hitler had taken over Europe, especially France, um, and there was this underground resistance movement, that's what God had started with the anointing of King David. Um, this rebel alliance, this, the kingdom of God is what Jesus called it. He, he comes and he says, I have now officially begun uh, the kingdom of God. When Jesus lands then it really gets going in force. But it all began right here. You know, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, Aslan was on the move at this point. And so I want to look at um, these two things, the empire, which I think is a theme throughout the entire Bible, and then also the kingdom of God, God's uh, invasion onto planet Earth to begin this resistance movement that we, uh, we are a part of just by being here tonight, by singing, by uh, praying, we are part of this underground resistance movement to the empire that rages against God. So first of all, the empire, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The word rage there uh, is more like growl, like a a really hungry, angry lion would growl, or murmuring or muttering. Um, It's like when a teacher assigns a really terrible paper, maybe they add something new to the syllabus, and you hear that noise. I was a teacher once, and you could hear that collective rumbling or murmuring or muttering, uh, kind of that sound of rebellion. That's, that's the nations here. The nations are raging and plotting. And it's all people. Uh, there, there is no innocent tribe somewhere. You know, we have this, we have this image in our mind of these people uh, on some remote island or in some uh, tropical jungle that have not been touched by Western colonialism. They're living in complete peace and tranquility. And this this is saying to that, no, there, there is no people anywhere that is not raging and murmuring and muttering and grumbling against God. And the same thing with the governments. In verse 2, all the kings set themselves, all the rulers take counsel together. They all plot against him. And so this idea of some kind of neutral, spiritually neutral government that doesn't really care about God one way or the other is, is again, that's a falsehood. Uh, that's a mirage. Not even some place like Sweden with, you know, great... Uh, job programs and uh, universal health care, low crime rate. You know, even Sweden, as great as that country is, they're not neutral towards God. All the rulers of the earth uh, plot and they all take counsel together against the Lord. And I know that what I'm saying is, um, is a really strong claim. It's not me saying it, it's the Bible saying it. But I think we all do know somewhere deep down, especially in these days, that there is something wrong with politics of, of every kind. And that might be a uh, democracy or a theocracy, uh, or it could be Republicans or Democrats or different ways to think about ruling peoples. But 
they all seem to go wrong, don't they? There's something wrong. There's some basic human political disposition that is wrong. And um, the Bible says that it's because of this rebellion. Uh, Let us burst God's bonds apart in verse 3. Again, that's what the people are saying. That's what the nations are, are raging about. They're, they're basically saying, and, and you need to think about in your own mind uh, if you've ever had this thought, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that you have because the Bible says that you have, um, that thought that God is an oppressor and that we are the oppressed. I mean, if you've never thought that, then um, you've probably not looked on the Internet very much about the kind of rhetoric that is out there about God. But uh, a person like Karl Marx This famous quote, uh, Marx said, Let the ruling class tremble at the revolution. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We have a world to win. Workmen of the world unite. And uh, it's like that clenched fist. You know, that that moral high ground of we are the heroic, innocent victim. We're kind of the the Che Guevara or the James Dean character. um, This valiant rebel. And we're saying that God has put these cords around us or he has put shackles on us and and we're saying let us cast their cords from us so the 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 idea there is that god is trying to keep us down and um i would say that the empire that i've been describing um they the empire is basically governed by the great emperor and it's not palpatine uh the bible describes him as a serpent or an accuser uh describes him as satan or the devil the deceiver and uh, one famous Russian anarchist named Mikhail Bakunin says that Satan is the eternal rebel, the first free thinker, and the emancipator of the world. And it's that idea of, you know, fight the power, that we think that God is the power, and we're trying to overthrow him, and that he's trying to hold us down. That's what Satan actually told Adam and Eve, that he's trying to hold you down. And you're not getting what is due to you. And he doesn't want you to thrive. And again, I want you to just think about in your own heart, when things aren't going well in your life, um, I, I know that I begin to immediately think that, that God has it out for me, or he kind of wants me under his thumb, or he, or he is uh, oppressing me. Um, that goes through my mind. And that it would be really brave and free and valiant of me to kind of throw that off, um, I googled the phrase, God is an oppressor, just to see what would come up. And uh, the, the, the website that came up is called Toxic Drum. Toxicdrum.com. And it says this. And when I read this, it was so plausible to me that it kind of frightened me. But listen to what this says. When things go right, people are encouraged to attribute this to God. But when things go wrong, it's your fault. This seems to be the arch- relationship of an oppressor to a victim. The oppressor, God, creates an environment where the victim, us, we suffer only by complying with the oppressor. So the victim sees the oppressor as their savior. You might have heard of the Stockholm Syndrome. It's the same idea. The idea is that um, God has us in this relationship where, where uh, we are this victim and he is our oppressor. And again, I, I read that and I thought, wow, that part of me thinks there might be truth in that. And then I realized I'm cra- that's just crazy to think that God is like that. That's, but that's the raging or the murmuring or the muttering. And again, you might think this is extreme. Um, you might say, well, I know people who are agnostic or who are a- atheists or secular. Maybe you are yourself. You're not sure what you believe about God. And, and you're like, well, I know people uh, who definitely are not raging against God. They're not muttering. They're not murmuring. They're very polite about God. They're almost indifferent to God. They can really care less about God. 
And I would say to someone like that, yes, that may be true when you're talking about God in this kind of theoretical, abstract sense in a nice, polite conversation over coffee. But if you actually start to talk about the, the Lord God Almighty uh, and talk about Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, and if you start talking about, like, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, and you begin to press someone on things like that, then you begin to see people get angry and mutter and murmur. And the reason that we begin to rage when someone tells us you've got to serve God or you, you, know, you must do these things that God says, the reason is because we don't want to submit to God at all. Um, we demand absolute control of whether it's our money or our body or our property or our sex or whatever we think that is ours, we are not about to give that up to God. You know, hands off to God. And if he would ever be so bold as to act like he has any claim over us in those areas, you know, we, we would think that's a human rights violation. And we'd call in the ACLU or we'd start a campaign, Kickstarter campaign about God oppressing us. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, the natural human mindset is always hostility towards God. Why? Because the natural human mind will not submit to God's law. Indeed, he says, indeed, it cannot do so. So our natural thinking uh, is incapable of submitting to God on our own because we have this law of our own that I belong to me. I am, I am master of my own life. I am captain of my own ship. As the great poet Jessica Simpson says, uh, I belong to me. My heart is my possession. I'll be my own reflection. Now, I, I promise you I didn't listen to that song. I just typed something in the internet, and that's what came up. But um, atheists and agnostics are not really the ones I'm talking about here. I'm talking about everyone. Um, this is as much a part of the life of the church as it is of atheists and agnostics. Jessica Simpson was um, the, the daughter of a youth pastor. My friend was actually in her youth group. And so her dad is the one who was, became her agent. And I just say that to say that, you know, to be in a church doesn't mean you're in any way immune from the empire. This idea is inside of all of us. And uh, that we're all insubordinate and churlish. Uh, to quote the substitute teacher from that Key and Peel skip. Uh, insubordinate and churlish. That is the raging of the empire. And, and the kingdom of God is this alternative, um, avant-garde, underground movement that is offered to all of us where uh, we get to admit that indeed we do murmur and we do mutter and we do uh, rage against God. We do rage against God. And the kingdom of God is a place where you can actually admit that. And I don't really know anyone but people uh, who are believers in Jesus that will admit that. It's like an AA meeting for uh, rage addiction. It's people sitting around, you know, in a church basement, smoking in metal chairs, uh, and saying to one another, I admit I'm powerless uh, over my raging, and my life has become unmanageable. That's, that's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And uh, the more you're admitting that, and the more you're working the steps, so to speak, the more you're involved in this glorious rebellion against the empire. And so I think what we need more than anything is what is suggested in verse 12, namely to kiss the sun, which basically means uh, kiss the signet ring 
of a great ruler. You know, a great ruler would put out their signet ring and uh, the subject would come in and take a knee and kiss the ring. And that is what it means to enter into the kingdom, is you, you bend your knee, um, you, you bow your head, and you kiss the son. You kiss his signet ring. So that's, that's now moving to the second point, the kingdom of God. We looked at the empire, the raging, the murmuring, the muttering, now the kingdom. Um, the, 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 the verse 12 should probably be translated something like pay homage to the king with absolute integrity, no irony, total sincerity, getting down again uh, on your knees and, and paying homage to God. And, you know, even just physically doing that is difficult. I mean, go home and, and go, go to your dorm. Go, go and try that um, somewhere tonight. Just, it's, it's one of the things that I really do respect about, uh, about Muslims. Um, you know, they, they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But one thing they do know how to do is they know how to submit and to bow down to, to God. And I think Christians have a lot to learn there because it is of the essence of the kingdom to, um, to bow down to the king and to kiss the ring. And when I was an atheist... The, the worst possible thing I could imagine would be to come into a setting like this and if some preacher, you know, particularly if they're like a rural preacher with a really thick country accent, were having an altar call and uh, the, my greatest nightmare would be to come down for that altar call and have this preacher lead me in the sinner's prayer and then people like lay hands on me. It would, just, it would have been so embarrassing to me to imagine doing that. And it would have felt like I was just being shattered or broken in pieces. And that's exactly what verse 9 says. Um, God says to the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's what it would have felt like to me to, to submit myself to the king. And again, maybe that's, maybe that's in you as well. Um, that to, to really um, lay down your life in front of this Messiah would be absolutely terrifying. It's this kind of amazing combination of rejoicing and trembling. I love that juxtaposition in verse 12 um, where he says, rejoice with trembling. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And um, that combination of a kind of a, a, a thrilling fear is what can liberate you from that raging, that muttering, that murmuring, is to feel that. I don't know if you've ever felt that before about God, if you've been to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or just seen some amazing vista in nature, I once went to the Cliffs of Moher in Ireland, and you're walking up this, just looks like grass, uh, like a, a sheep pasture. You come to this edge, and all of a sudden, it's 700 feet straight down. And if you've seen The Princess Bride, it's the Cliffs of Insanity in The Princess Bride. And it is terrifying. I, I immediately stepped back. I, was, I didn't really want to go near it, and yet... Then I got down on my hands and knees and kind of crawled to the edge like this and just barely looked up. I could just barely look over without getting that feeling in my, in my gut of just butterflies and anxiety. But I wanted it, and I was terrified of it, and that's, how, that's what it's like to be in the presence of the king, to be rejoicing with trembling. This is how one translation uh, puts it, Psalm 46.1. Standing fearless at the cliff edge of doom courageous in a sea storm and earthquake before the rush and roar of oceans. I imagine if you were in Wilmington right now or down by the coast, this is kind of the feeling you would have. Of, of the one t- one, on the one hand, like, there's that tear. On the other hand, there's that fascination. Like, I'd like to see it. I kind of would like to be there, and then I don't want to be there. But that's how it is with God. He's like a hurricane. 
And to come into the kingdom and to be liberated from the empire is to realize that if you're in the presence of God, you're in the presence of a, of a hurricane. I was talking to a friend who really liked her boss, which is really, really rare. But she said she liked her boss. And I asked her, why do you, why do you like your boss? And she said, I like my boss because she doesn't suffer fools gladly. I don't know if you've heard of that expression, but it comes from the Apostle Paul. To suffer fools gladly. And I, I asked her, I said, do you think God is like that? Would you say that God suffers fools gladly? And she was like, absolutely not. I would never want to worship a deity that is permissive and soft and, uh, and, and suffers fools gladly. I, I want a God who doesn't suffer fools gladly. I want a God, uh, in verse 12, his wrath is kindled quickly. Now, this flies in the face of a lot of uh, you know, children's books about Jesus where he's got this perpetual smile on his face and uh, big white teeth. Um, there was one of them I looked at called Uncle Jesus, and you can actually Google that and see the picture. And he's like laughing hysterically with a little child and he's making these shavings uh, as a carpenter. But um, a lot of us who are raised in the church were raised with kind of an Uncle Jesus idea. But the fact is that we serve a, a king who is mighty and grim. And uh, he does not suffer fools gladly. He said things like this, Woe to you, brood of vipers, about the hypocrites. Matthew twenty-three thirty-three. He He entered the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold prison. Imagine I just like, threw all this equipment off the stage. It would, you, it would be jarring to you. You'd be like, why? He's got an anger problem. Well, Jesus did a lot more than that. He just was throwing things all over the temple. And then Mark 3, 5, my favorite. Uh, Jesus saw that the people in the synagogue did not care about the man with the withered hand. And Jesus looked at them with anger in his heart. And he was grieved about their hardness of heart. And when you're in the presence of a king like that, um, it really does, it shuts down the raging. Uh, this holy, awesome king who is not soft and whose response to all the rage of the empire is simply to say, I have set my king on Zion. That's all he says, to all the rage of the empire, that, that uh, I have set my king on Zion. To, to all of their setting themselves against, all of their plotting in vain, all of their counseling together, he simply says, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. He does not suffer fools gladly. But it's amazing that this psalm of all psalms, which is a very militaristic psalm, a martial psalm, it might be hard for you to hear these things about this psalm. Um, it, but look at how it ends. And this is the amazing thing about the God of the Bible. Uh, it ends to telling, it's telling all the kings, it begins to speak to the kings in verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, O rules of the earth. There's no anger there. There's no punishment there. There's no vindictiveness there. There's no guilt trip, no penance required. He says at the very end, blessed are all of you, raging rebels, kings, murderers, you know, all these things that the nations did. Uh, Blessed are you who take refuge in the Messiah. That's how the whole psalm ends. Blessed are you who take refuge in the Messiah. And blessed... um, Blessed means, kind of like going back to what I said about the king earlier on, uh, imagine yourself in the place of David. So imagine you're the one coming down, you're the queen, or you're the king that's being anointed, you're being, uh, you're being crowned. 
You're being exalted. You're being enthroned. That's what it means to be blessed, is to be raised up by God. It's like the, uh, if you've read Narnia, the four children, the, the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, Lucy the Valiant, uh, Susan the Gentle, Peter the Magnificent, Edmund the Just, enthroned at Caerparavel. He would say to them, as he would say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter. Today I have begotten you. That's what, that's what he says not only to David and to Jesus, but also to us, to the extent that we take refuge in Jesus. He will tell us, rebels and ragers and murmurers and mutterers, he says, I will make you my child as well. So Karl Marx, Toxic Drums, you know, Mikhail Bakunin, they're, they're completely wrong. It's not only that God is not an oppressor, He's definitely not holding anyone down. It's, it's exactly the opposite. He is actually exalting people who rebel against him. So that quote I read earlier um, is completely off. God is a God uh, who actually um, himself suffers. He becomes the victim. He becomes dethroned. You know, Jesus, Jesus actually was crowned for the first time where? When he was being crucified. Uh, and they put a crown of thorns that caused his brow to bleed. And that's where he was crowned. So far from being an oppressor, uh, the anointed was dethroned so that we could be exalted. And he was cursed so that we could be blessed. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for you to bring your Holy Spirit